Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This is The View From Somewhere, a podcast about journalism with a purpose. I'm Ramona Martinez, the producer. This podcast is serialized, so if you like what you hear, go back and listen from the start. You can find full transcripts of these episodes at viewfromsomewhere.com. And just so you're aware, this episode does contain a graphic description of police violence about a minute from now. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. Hey, Ramona. Hey, Louis. Hi, cute listeners. Happy New Year. And I wanted to say a quick thank you to the people who have gone online and donated to help us get to the end of this season. We've raised more than $1,000 that way, thanks to you folks who made the leap. Uh, And for those who haven't yet, there are signed copies of my book available and these gorgeous posters of Ida B. Wells and Marvell Cook and Ruben Salazar. So just go to viewfromsomewhere.com, click on the donate button, feel fucking good about yourself all day. And seriously, thank you to the people who've supported us already. You're awesome. Thank you so much. Okay, so on the last episode of The View From Somewhere, we talked about seeking truth in the Vietnam era. Today, Ramona and I want to share the story of someone else who reported in Vietnam, someone whose legacy is really important to the history of objectivity and to us personally. We're talking about Ruben Salazar, who was one of the first Latino journalists to have a byline in an Anglo newspaper, the LA Times. He was well known in LA because he also ran the city's first Spanish language news station, KMEX. And in August of 1970, He went to cover a huge demonstration on the east side held by Mexican-Americans to protest how many people in their community were being killed in Vietnam. Like 30,000 people came to this protest. With a bronze culture, before the world, before all of North America, before all our brothers on this bronze continent, we are a nation. Even though there were families and children at the rally, there was an incident near the park that caused police to sweep in and clash with the protesters. Ruben Salazar and his camera crew ducked into a nearby bar to get away from the clashes. But while he was in there, an LAPD deputy aimed a tear gas projectile into the bar and it struck Salazar on the head and killed him instantly. This story is so awful. A lot of people think it was an assassination, right? People have always suspected that the police killed him on purpose, but it's never been definitively proven. But what we can say is that he became more famous in death than he ever was in life. And it's actually his life and career that I want to focus on today. 
And we're so lucky. Ramona used to be a producer at Backstory and did this piece we're about to play for an episode there called Behind the Bylines. So grateful that this exists. Take it away, Ramona. In 1968, Ruben Salazar got a letter from the L.A. Times. He was in Mexico City serving as the newspaper's bureau chief. Salazar was an old-school, Cronkite-era reporter. He had been with the L.A. Times for nine years, including a stint covering the Vietnam War. In Mexico, he had been enjoying his promotion to bureau chief. But his editors were recalling him back to L.A. They needed him on his old beat, the Mexican-American beat. Because the Times really didn't have anyone else. This is filmmaker Philip Rodriguez. Well, there were a lot of reasons for it, but ultimately, some of his editors believed that Ruben would do a better job of, of, of reporting this phenomenon than, than other people might. This phenomenon he refers to is what's now known as the Chicano movement. It was a decades-long civil rights struggle for Mexican-Americans, and in 1968, it had exploded on the streets of L.A. We have the lowest reading rate in East L.A., in the, in the East Side schools. News reports covered the activism. In one case... 15,000 students from some of L.A.'s poorest neighborhoods staged a walkout. We have graduates to graduate from high school, to graduate and are out to face the world and can only read an eighth and a ninth grade reading level. And we believe this is a crisis. This was the politically charged atmosphere Ruben Salazar encountered when he returned to L.A. in 1969. Felix Gutierrez is a journalism professor at the University of Southern California. He was a student activist back then. This was a period of activism, of picketing, of protesting, marches, demands, uh, confrontations, some of them violent, between establishment authorities, whether it's law enforcement, schools, health officials, or whatever, as a community developed its own identity and its own name for, it, uh, for what it was, which is the Chicano movement. Salazar wasn't thrilled about his new assignment. Philip Rodriguez says that although Salazar believed Mexican-Americans were underserved, he didn't really identify with the young Chicano activists. You know, he was a silent generation era American, a Korean War veteran, hard worker, and, and very much an assimilationist. He married a, a white lady, a gringa, and lived in Orange County. Rodriguez says that at first, Salazar was skeptical of the Chicano movement's militant tactics. Its leaders included groups like the Brown Berets, modeled on the Black Panthers. And, and, we, and when he first started hearing their rhetoric and witnessing their rather brash, insistent style, I think Salazar was taken aback and a little mistrustful of what was going on. But Salazar covered the Chicano movement seriously. He wrote about plans for strikes, interviewed the Brown Berets, and spent time in the barrios. He reported on the indictment of movement organizers like Sal Castro, who faced 66 years in prison for helping students plan the East L.A. walkouts. He also wrote about bilingual public schools on the U.S.-Mexico border. But by 1970, after just one year reporting on the Chicano movement, Salazar started to get restless. Salazar's next move might have seemed strange for an Orange County Cronkite-era reporter. He became news director of a Spanish-language television station in Los Angeles called KMEX. But he didn't sever his ties to the LA Times. 
He also wrote a weekly opinion column for the paper. Felix Gutierrez says in those columns, Salazar began to speak more openly about his perspective as a Mexican-American. This took some of his former news colleagues by surprise. Here's who I am. Here's the way I see things. Here's the way the people look, look at things. And their story was that he was good old Rube at the L.A. Times uh, before he left. And he started, then they start seeing his columns. They realize he's not one of the boys. He has had different experiences and he sees things differently than we, we do. The siesta is over a series designed to further understanding between the Anglo and Mexican-American community. Here's Ruben Salazar in a 1970 interview with a local television station. Salazar is talking to journalist Bob Navarro. Navarro speaks first. Well, here you were at the Los Angeles Times, large metropolitan daily, a newspaper with an international reputation, riding a crest of a career. All of a sudden, you leave the Times, you go to Channel 34, like I said before, a Spanish-speaking station. Why? I, I felt like I made a full circle uh, at the Times, and uh, I was very happy there. But uh, the most important thing about my move to me was that I was uh, frustrated. I wanted to really communicate with the people uh, about uh, whom I had been writing for for so long with uh, the Mexican-American community directly and in their language. Because you see, As news director of KMEX, Salazar continued covering the Chicano protest movement. He also began investigating the Los Angeles Police Department and the L.A. County Sheriff's Office and documenting police violence. Gonzo journalist Hunter S. Thompson wrote that Salazar's relations with the police were growing increasingly hostile. When Salazar got onto a routine story about some worthless kid named Ramirez getting beaten to death in a jail fight, he was likely to come up with almost anything, including a series of hard-hitting news commentaries strongly suggesting that the victim had been beaten to death by the jailers. In the summer of 1970, Ruben Salazar was warned three times by the cops to tone down his coverage, and each time he told them to f*** off. Salazar was beginning to rethink his role as a journalist. Here's Bob Navarro again, asking him about it. I may be making a judgment that's unfair, but it seems to me that you're leaving a position as a reporter who should be, quote, objective, and venturing into an area of advocacy. Right. You're absolutely right. I think all this uh, talk about objectivity in the press is so unrealistic. I remember that uh, the, a great quote from, uh, I forget what poet it was, but it said, he said that man is an emotional animal, not a rational one. And I believe that strongly. And so consequently, if man is an emotional animal and not a rational one, objectivity is impossible. And I don't think there's a newsman alive who really thinks that objectivity is the name of the game in the news media. But is advocacy the name of the game? Can you work as a functional day-to-day -day reporter in the position of advocacy? I'm only advocating uh, the Mexican-American community, just like the general media is, is advocating, really, our economy, our country, our way of life. So I'm just advocating a community within a com community, which, by the way, the general community has totally ignored. And so someone must advocate that. 
historian Mario Garcia thinks this advocacy came at a price. And Salazar had the feeling that he was being spied upon, that uh, he was being investigated, that uh, at one point he felt that things from his desk in his office had been gone through and so forth. And uh, he felt that uh, there was an effort by the police to strike back at him. The day before the protest where he was killed, his boss said, I'll see you on Monday. Salazar replied, yeah, if I survive, you'll see me. The next time his boss saw him, he was identifying Salazar's body. He was 42 when he died. Felix Gutierrez says that no charges were brought against the police deputy who fired the tear gas canister that struck Salazar. It appears to have been an accident, according to reporters who have examined redacted files. But many Chicanos, including Gutierrez, weren't so sure. It just didn't ring true that uh, this was just happenstance or a circumstance of errors that had, that had made this happen. And he, uh, ra- he was raised to iconic status uh, by our people because he had been our voice. Overnight, Salazar became a martyr for the Chicano movement. Hundreds of Mexican-Americans came to pay their respects while his body laid in state in East L.A. But Philip Rodriguez says Salazar's martyrdom is misplaced. He had been reporting on the Chicano movement and thought it was an important story, but he wasn't an activist. They appropriated Reuben and his memory. Uh, Reuben, who really wasn't a member of their movement, Reuben, who really was a, 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 a bystander, an onlooker, a, a chronicler. And it was a strange fit. Even his widow one day said, I don't recognize the man that they've made out of my, my husband to be. He wouldn't recognize himself. Mario Garcia says that Ruben Salazar valued his identity as a mainstream journalist. Because he, I think so much of him still wanted to be respected as a professional journalist. He didn't want, again, to be stereotyped as a Mexican journalist, and he certainly would not want to be stereotyped as a Chicano activist or a Chicano movement journalist. So it was part of his inner struggles, I think. Filmmaker Philip Rodriguez thinks Salazar was killed before he could resolve that tension. So what makes Ruben Salazar interesting is that in a certain way he was neither fish nor fowl, that he was trying to both understand and responsibly report on a very rapidly changing uh, environment. That piece was from Behind the Bylines, Advocacy in America, a Backstory episode from 2017. You can hear more episodes of Backstory at backstoryradio.org. Special thanks to voice actor James Scales, who played Hunter S. Thompson. El 29 de agosto, ni me quisiera acordar. Fue cuando perdió la vida nuestro Rubén Salazar. Rubén Salazar ha muerto un sábado por la tarde. Mataron a un hombre bueno, pero dejó sus ideales. Next time on The View From Somewhere. 
I remember we faxed a mile of black paper to the New York Times when they got their first fax machine. Or the ACT UP made a facsimile of the New York Times called New York Crimes and put it in their newspaper boxes. And, because the, the reporting was just terrible. Covering AIDS in the 1980s and how being close to the story can sometimes make us better reporters. Stay tuned in, subscribe, please tell your friends about us, and leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps. Also, don't forget to go to our website, viewfromsomewhere.com, to make a donation. You'll be part of this independent effort to change journalism. Plus, you can get amazing posters of Ida B. Wells or Marvell Cook or Ruben Salazar by Billy D, who also designed our logo. And get a signed copy of my book, The View From Somewhere. I'm Lewis Raven Wallace. And I'm Ramona Martinez. Our theme music is by Dog Botic, additional music by Poddington Bear. Special thanks to Roxana Bendezu, who does our social media. Our distributor is Critical Frequency. And thanks to WUNC for use of the studio. And uh, talk to you next time. <laughs>